What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go papertarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome back to the show. This is Car Stuff. My name is Ben. And I'm Scott. And today we're going to talk about something that I always always wondered about as a kid uh riddle me this by way of segue all right uh did you go to museums fairly frequently as a kid all the time yeah Mm -hmm. um what was one of your favorite museums oh the henry ford which was uh was i think it was called the henry ford museum at Mm -hmm. the time they changed the name right but uh, that was definitely my favorite so there you are the the young tyke Scott Benjamin, uh, exploring the Henry Ford Museum. You were a sharp kid, so you probably already noticed that there were certain areas of the museum that you could not enter, right? Yeah, off limits. Yeah, off limits. Mm-hmm. Employees only. What's behind that door? What is behind that door? What is in that whole other building, mm-hmm. etc.? That is part of the inspiration for today's episode, which is secret car collections Mm -hmm. that's right and you know it's funny we think of uh you know places like museums we think that everything that they've got is out in the open you know everything is on display there's there's nothing else to see here right right and uh we would think you know uh i understand if there's some restoration work going on but once you have that painting restored or that engine fixed then of course why the heck wouldn't you put it out on display? That's what you're a museum for, right? I guess so. But then you see in the back room, you know, you go down the hallway and then you see that there's a, uh, I don't know, there's a freight elevator that's awful big and right. it goes deep, deep into the ground. Mm-hmm. And you wonder, what's in the, what's in the basement? Yeah. What, what could be hanging out down there in the basement of the Henry Ford or, or of uh, the Walter P. Chrysler Museum or sure. places like that? So, you know, I know that there are, there's some of their display is out on out in the public, but you just don't know exactly what's there. And we talked recently about the Dale car, right? Yes. And the Peterson Museum. Mm-hmm. And we heard that the Dale rarely makes an appearance 
in the museum, in the in the actual museum itself, where the public sees, it's typically parked in the basement in the corner, you know, covered up under a tarp or something. Right. And uh, you know, there's there's likely a lot of other vehicles down there that are similar. We just don't hear about because we were just talking about the Dale that episode. Mm-hmm. But I know that there's others that are down there that are equally intriguing, you know, or close to it, anyways. Right. That uh, we just don't hear about, and I wonder what's there. And you know, this is museums are one thing. But there's also private individuals that, that keep collections like this that we rarely hear about. And, right. uh, you know, there's, there's some that are just kind of squirreled away somewhere that, you know, y- you may have heard tale of, you know, like an old timer mentions, like I know of a warehouse downtown mm-hmm. that has this in it. And you kind of think, well, that's an interesting story, but I wonder how much truth there is to it. Between 29th Avenue and 30th Street, there's an unmarked black garage door. Not four times on a Tuesday. Yep, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Ben. Yeah. Is that there's stories like that all over the place, mm-hmm. and which ones do you believe, which ones do you not believe? And, uh, you know, the intriguing thing about this whole thing, and I, I always find secret collections intriguing. Oh, yeah. It doesn't matter what. Oh, yeah. And I think that's why people like to watch shows that, you know, like um, uh, there's a show, and I won't name it, I guess, but okay. it's a show that... Uh, People go around to other people's property and they look at interesting things that they've amassed over the years and they make offers to buy them and then they, uh, you know, bring it back to their own shop and then sell it. Oh, and, so uh, collections of like shoes or yeah, stamps and or windows. He, and I love the show. Yeah. And I love to see what they find in, you know, old barns and people's property, you know, in the basement or wherever in the attic. Yeah. It's just interesting. I think people find it interesting to see things that are rarely seen that, that people don't know about. Just when you drive by the property, you may not notice everything that's there. And, Let's see. Maybe the most intriguing thing about these secret collections is that, you know, they're not a secret to everybody. I mean, right. the, the locals know about the stuff. They know that, you know, that, that there's a collection of cars that's kind of out in the out in the woods here that, you know, trees have started to grow around. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but anybody who's driving by or anybody who's not from that town may not have heard of this. And, you know, things are just they kind of accumulate over the years. You know, people grow collections slowly. You know, they don't, uh, they don't all happen at once. It's not like, you know, everybody's super wealthy and they can afford to buy 25 exotic cars at one time, but maybe they've got a collection of, uh, kind of ordinary cars that they've just gathered over the years, you know, like over yeah. decades sometimes. Yeah. And that makes sense. If you think about it, it's not an unreasonable proposition for there to be someone who makes an average amount of money and they save, right? They, they scrimp and they're thrifty and, Every few years, they buy a car, maybe not uh, not even a new one, maybe a beat-up car that they then spend some time restoring. And then, boom, a few decades later, 40, 50, even 60 years later, they have amassed a fleet of amazing vehicles, some of which are now 60-plus years old. Yeah, that's right. We, uh, you know, Matt, your, uh, your co-host on mm-hmm. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know, he was just telling us about this. A friend of his, uh, his father... Right. Um, had such a collection. I think the the gentleman passed away a yeah. couple of years ago and left behind a collection of something like forty, 40. like forty, really really nice automobiles. Now, not yeah. all of them pristine by any means. Sure. I remember talking to him about this collection when it happened, and he said this guy now his son uh, was tasked with you know hanging onto some and getting rid of some you know for the right. uh, for the estate. Yeah, and. It's, I mean, what do you do with something like that? I mean, suddenly you're in ownership, you're in possession of, 
you know, 40 to 50 cars that you just don't know what to do with. You know, what the, what's the value of them? What's, uh, you know, is it, is it sentimental value and you want to hang on to it or right. is it, there's just so many. They couldn't have all have been, they couldn't all have been really, really special to him in any way. Hmm. Some of them you can let go. And, and which ones do you do that with? You know, that's a, that's a difficult decision to make. And it's interesting that you say that because in that anecdote, we're talking about it on an individual level. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you as an individual make that decision? But another thing we're going to find uh, is that institutions have to make these decisions. Uh, Scott, if you're cool with it, I think our first car collection we talk about should be the Smithsonian. Let's do it. Okay. So the Smithsonian, worldwide famous, fantastic museums. Uh, you can see amazing things uh, from the entire world and from the United States in specific and one of the things that you might not expect to be able to see will be automobiles. Now, just keep that in your mind for a second, because we're going to explain a problem that every museum seems to have, or many museums, the Smithsonian included. And the problem is this. You can have well-meaning philanthropists or well-meaning members of the public or foreign governments or companies or whatever. Uh, you can have these people donate things to you for your museum, for your collection, and say, please, the public needs to know about, you know, the the airplane that flew at Kitty Hawk, or the public needs to know about this amazing natural uh, formation that we found, or this uh, the public needs to know about this wonderful piece of art, right? Sure. Uh, but with that gift also comes the responsibility of maintaining this thing, right? Of repairing it, restoring it. Simply storing it, this item. Just storing it sometimes can can have phenomenal costs. You've got to have the real estate to be able to do something like this. And the Smithsonian has grown incredibly. I mean, this yeah. thing, it's been around since 1846, the Smithsonian has. Now, that's a long, long time to be, uh, to be running a museum and gathering items. Ben, did you know how many items they have in the Smithsonian? You might, because you've been reading about this. Oh, uh, why don't you just tell me? Okay. Yeah, I'll tell you this. The Smithsonian is a complex of buildings and museums. It's 19 museums, nine research centers, and even a zoo. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of, a lot of, uh, real estate, a lot of property involved in this. Huge complex of museums. It's the, the biggest of its type in the world. They now hold, Ben, over 137 million items in the Smithsonian. Right, and that's everything from, you know, a small thing like an arrowhead to gigantic actual, you know, planes. Well, dinosaur fossils. Dinosaur and, um, fossils, I mean, that's a great one. Um, let's see, I've got a, a short list here. I mean, they've got the Hope Diamond. They've got Evil Knievel's motorcycle. Um, they've got the ruby slippers from the Wizard of Oz. They've got a giant female squid that they keep, you know, somewhere in, in the uh, in the bowels of the thing. They've got the Spirit of St. Louis, which was, you know, Charles Lindbergh's plane. Yeah. Um, you know, some of these big things. They've got presidential hair clippings. They've got a little bit of everything there, and that's what makes it such a great place to go. And all these different buildings, these you know, these nineteen different museums, they've all got their own focus, their own their own yeah. um, area that they feature. And the museum, I don't know the exact name of it, but the Museum of Transportation, uh, I'm not sure the exact title of the one that houses the automobiles and airplanes and things like that, but they've got a real problem with deciding what they're going to put on display. Right, yes, because the real estate is pretty limited when it gets to the exhibition space, right? Yeah. And that's the question. So 
this is a little bit of a bait and switch, perhaps, uh, when we call the Smithsonian's car collection a secret collection. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, but yeah. you wouldn't expect them to have the numbers that they do have. Ah, yeah, that's right. Because being open since the late 1800s, um, we can go ahead and say that out, if we just say vehicles in general, right? Just every vehicle in general, they have, uh, 217. 217 vehicles. Now that would take an enormous, I mean, a huge warehouse space. I oh mean, yeah. We're talking, uh, I mean, acres of property that they would have to require to be able to display 217 vehicles, even if they were parked side by side, you know, not really on display. Right. Just jammed into an area that you could see them all at one time. To build a display big enough, it may even be impractical for people to walk through. Now, now of the, of the 217 vehicles that we're talking about, only 73 of those are actually considered cars. Right. Now, the reason is because these go all the way back to, you know, steam wagons and horse-drawn carriages and things right. like that. So, you know, you get to a certain point, and I think and you have to get all the way up to the late 18, 1890s before you get to what they actually consider a car that, they, that they've collected, you know, that they've amassed over the years. Because, you know, going back to 1846 and then any vehicle prior to that that they've decided to store. So they've got... Um, this enormous collection that they've just slowly, slowly gathered over the years, and they've got some really, really impressive ones. I mean, I'm going through the list right now. I've got to print out, but um, it's vehicles that, that in some way change transportation. You know, they all mean something. They're all significant right. in some way. They're hinges to the door of auto history. Yeah, so like a Stanley Steamer, you know, from 1910 is what they have on, on display. They have, um, and I'm just going to list just a couple here. Okay. They have um, a Tucker. Oh, yeah, you beat me to it. Oh, the 1948 Tucker sedan, number 39 of the 51 built. Ben, do you want to take that one? Oh, yeah. no, no, no. Oh, okay. No. I, I am, I'm just glad that we are mentioning this one. Yeah, that's right. It's a, it's an impressive vehicle. They have a, uh, they have a 1964 Chrysler turbine car, which, you know, all those were supposedly destroyed. Now, I think that, you know, the Walter P. Chrysler Museum has one as well, maybe even two, I'm not sure. Right. There are very few of these things around. I know that, you know, the the uh, the, the running versions of these, uh, I think they were somehow disabled. There may be one in that still operates, something like that, but they're very, very rare. Uh, the, a 1953 Glasspar G2, which was one of the first fiberglass cars. Oh, very cool. Made, and that was back in the 1950s. That predates the Corvette. And, uh-huh. um, also the 19, uh, oh boy, look at that, 1986 Dodge Caravan. And you may think, well, why the heck would they do that? That's the first <laughs> minivan. And that was a big turn right. in automotive transportation. I mean, that was the very first minivan. So they've got one on display and it's in pristine condition also the um the 1997 ev1 electric car you know the uh the the, the whole uh, focus of the who killed the electric car right. um, documentary that was done they've got one that's that, that was not destroyed so they've got some really unusual vehicles but the problem again is how do they store 73 cars when they can only display you know a handful of these at a time because they just don't have the space right and this is part of oh also inexplicably they have a vega from 1977. <laughs> there's got to be a reason. There's there always be, a reason. Yeah, there's always... If you read the plaques that go along with each one of these, there's always a reason. It's and not just like, hey, we knew this guy, guy named Ted Johnson, and he was pretty cool, and here's his car. It was a Camry. It's not like that. It's, no. Uh, it, it is something that is impactful, because these are part of one of the Smithsonian branches. Uh, these are part of the National Museum of American History, Uh which is interesting because the National Museum of American History has a transportation collection, but there's not, 
you know, there, while we do have a national museum of air and space, we don't have a national museum of, you know, land or transportation itself. It's a subcategory of a category. I'm glad you cleared that up because earlier I was a little confused on what uh, what museum this would be part of, really. So right. that makes sense. It makes, uh, I guess it makes sense. It's just uh, one writer said that part of it is that the um, that the automobiles never really had an advocate or a champion at the Smithsonian because the only reason that we have the Air and Space Museum is because uh, President Truman created it in 1946 uh, after there was an, a real firebrand advocating for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to, you know, you have to push for something if you want it. And it didn't happen with the Smithsonian yet. But this is by far not the only car, coll- secret car collection, right? Scott? No, and we mentioned, you know, we mentioned the Henry Ford. And I, I'll be honest with you, I don't know if the Henry Ford has many more than what they, what they've got on display. I would think that they would. But I know when they have, you know, special displays, like let's say, um, uh, something that focuses on American culture, uh, they may bring in a certain type of vehicles that are donated or that are, that are on loan, uh, you know, f- for that display and then maybe they go away. I'm not sure how that all works. I don't know how the rotation works at the Henry Ford. You know, if they have a, a warehouse somewhere that they keep cars that just simply aren't being shown or being restored right. or, yeah. I, I would think that it has to be that way. And if somebody is listening out there, if anybody out there, has kind of the inside track on what the Henry Ford does. You know, if there's a, a warehouse in downtown Detroit somewhere that stores cars for them or, you know, whatever the case may be, or maybe it's, you know, in northern Michigan and they, they truck them in. Who knows? Um, I'd love to know about the kind of the inner workings of the Henry Ford and how that happens. And I, I can't give you even an honest count about how many vehicles are on display because it changes all the time. Right. As you said, I think you made an excellent point there, Scott, when you said that they'll bring in cars from outside collections, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes even from private collectors to display. And I, I can't even tell you if that's the truth. I mean, who knows? Maybe maybe the Henry Ford owns all of these cars. Maybe that's their thing. Maybe we have to own all the cars that are on display. I just don't know. There's a, there's like a, a, a bit of secrecy in that, you know, you can't easily find this, you know, just doing simple research. You'd have to really call and dig around and ask yeah. all these questions specifically to the people that operate the place. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We're going to go back to our episode about secret car collections. And Scott, I do have one sidebar here real quick, just going back to the Smithsonian. Sure. Uh, they did something really interesting a few years back, and they asked the public to vote on which cars they should bring out into the public exhibition they space. They did. So they've had, that? yeah, but so they had a list of all the cars that they have available, you know, the ones that they're able to, uh, able to display. Right. And the public voted. Yeah. And they voted on stuff like, uh, the 1997 EV1 electric car, which, uh, the GM, or yeah, the EV1 never reached the market. And, uh, it's super rare now, but the Smithsonian has one of those. They have a long steam tricycle from the 1880s, self-propelled bicycle, only weighs 350 pounds. They have the, uh, the GM Sun Racer there, which was, yep. uh, that, that, um, that's I guess the solar ex- car. Experiment in solar power. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and they have, uh, they have some, we mentioned the Tucker race car, or the Tucker sedan. We should mention the Miller race cars, um, which we, I won't say much about those because we might do an episode just on those later. Uh, but the, the point being that it's, it's important if you hear about secreted away things in museums. I, I've heard this collection called the Noah's Ark of the Smithsonian. Yeah. It's not quite fair because it's not as if there's some conspiracy afoot to keep these away from people. No, and some people know they're there. It's just, again, this is just like, well, yeah, I know the Smithsonian. I went there and they have, uh, they have about five or six cars and that's maybe about it. You don't realize that they have 73 that they have available, but somebody is taking care of those in a warehouse somewhere and they're yeah. just, they're, you know, they're stacked up on a shelf or whatever, you know. Right. They would love to show us these cars all at once, I'm sure, mm-hmm. but, but how? Washington DC is not known for its large amounts of space. No, it's not. No, it's not. So, you know, there's, there's likely underground storage somewhere, oh, which just, is intriguing. Just drive them all up, you know, once, once a, a year or at some point on the 4th of July. Just drive them to the National Mall, park on the grass. That would be really cool to see all of them on display at one time. I'm, I, I, I wonder if they would, I'm sure they would fit in the National Mall. Of That's course. huge. Yeah, it's giant. 
But, um, okay, yeah, well, if you're listening to this and you're in charge of uh, 4th of July celebrations in D.C. And you know someone at the Smithsonian that's uh, got this kind of poll. And you uh, want to uh, hang out with us for an afternoon. Let's make this happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's likely. I'm sure that person is listening. So let's just hedge our bets. And in case the Smithsonian uh, scheme doesn't work out for us, Scott, what are some other secret well, car collections? I, I wish. I wish, Ben, I had more details about the Henry Ford. Because, you know, yeah. when you're talking about that, I feel bad that it's like, well, here's a general, like, I wonder if they have this. I wonder if they have that. But sure. I wish we had more on that. But I'll tell you what we do know more about is we know more about the, uh, like, the Nissan Museum. Now, Nissan ah. has a secret, a a what they call a top secret, yeah, in air quotes, um, heritage, <laughs> heritage center, right. which is in Zama, I think it's Zama, Zama, Japan, and it's right where the company was founded, just like something like eighty plus years ago now at this point. But Nissan, Datsun, you know, that's the brand we're talking about. And not all the cars that are there are pristine. They're not all like museum quality cars. Some of them were raced and placed right directly into the museum. As soon as they were done racing, so they're a little bit rough, a little beat up, yeah. uh, in as race condition. There's also some that were donations from the public, you know, people that donate cars with the knowledge that you know your car is going to be safe now because it's donated donated the museum. It's not going to be you know sitting in the uh, on the street rotting away, and right. it's of some significance. And you know, Datsun, Nissan didn't have a copy of that, and they wanted one, and you happen to have one, and you know you don't really want to hang on to it any longer, so you donate the car. Yeah. And uh, I think it's a good solution for both people. You can say that, you know, you did something to preserve the history of, of Datsun or, or Nissan you or whatever. You are part it's, of that history. Exactly right. And if you look at the photo, there's a um, Top Gear article, you know, photos that go along with an article, rather, that uh, these photos from this museum are just incredible, Ben. The Nissan Museum is awesome. You should see the race cars that they have. They're just lined up one after the other. Gorgeous, gorgeous race cars. So if you get a chance, check out the Nissan Museum. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that is what well, I like that one, but we haven't yet talked about a private collection. Yeah. You know, I want to get to one eventually, you know, here okay. towards the end of the podcast okay. that, that very few people know about, but I think would be excited if they knew it was there. Ah. Um, but I, let's talk about, um, you said, let's throw in one private one right now. How about that? Okay. Yeah. You yeah. said you wanted to hear one about that. Yeah. Um, remember last summer? I think it was last summer. It must have been. I think it was, uh, maybe even later in the year, maybe in the fall of mm-hmm. 2013. There was a uh, a place called uh, Pierce, Nebraska. Oh, that you, sorry. You, you know this one. So, <laughs> so go ahead and you want to just mention it? Okay. Well, just a high level look and check me if I'm wrong here. Okay. Uh, there is a field in this town in Nebraska, which is just lousy with cars, yeah, right? Chevrolets. Right. Only Chevys. In Pierce, Nebraska. Yeah. This guy, his name is uh, Ray Lambrick. And Lambrick, I think you'll all remember this exactly when I'm talking about it. If you're a, a fan of car stuff, you probably know about this news, but the, yeah. the Lambrick auction, that was now the now infamous Lambrick auction. And that's when the rest of the world heard about it because people traveled from countries far and wide to Nebraska to bid on these cars. Here's how big this, this was. Here's how big of a deal it was. The town itself typically has 1,767 um, population. Right. Pretty small place. That's a relatively small place. Very small town. And I think, you know, that there was an additional amount of people that were also on the phone and, you know, uh, Skyping or whatever, oh, trying right, to get yeah. in on the action, you yeah. know, in the auction action. Uh, but there's this huge auction that happened in, in the fall. And this is one of those things, Ben, there's, there's 500 Chevrolets parked out in a field somewhere and, and you know, barns and outbuildings or whatever. But 
no one knew about them other than the people of Pierce, Nebraska, and maybe the surrounding towns. Who knew about them for a while. Yeah, they've known about them for a long, long time, because this was a collection that took 50 years to build. Yep. And the, the story is that the guy, you know, he was a, um, I think he was a dealer, right? He was a, yeah, uh, he was a car dealer. A local Chevrolet dealer, and he said that if, you know, the car didn't sell within the first year, what he'd do is he'd just take it to this field and park it. And, you know, he always had them available, I guess. Now, some of them were stashed in buildings. Others were, of course, just parked in this field, like we said. Um, but this has been going on since, like, the late 1940s. So you can right. imagine that some of the cars that are parked there early on, you know, the ones at the back of the field or maybe the front of the field, I don't know. <laughs> um, these are the ones that, you know, people are, are really taking notice of because they were parked with, you know, maybe five or six miles on the odometer, something right. like that. Very, yeah. very low mileage. And these are rare vehicles now, too. Un- unrestored. And, you know, some yeah. of them, you know, not every one of them, Ben, were anything special. You know, some right. of them some of them were just kind of uh, middle-of-the-road Chevrolets, you know, nothing yeah. The stuff that just didn't sell. I was going to say, there's a reason they ended on the field. Yeah. Some of them just weren't popular. Uh, but some of them, over time, became very valuable. And, right. and I think some of them actually, you know, garnered quite a bit of money at these at these at this auction, rather. But in the end, uh, the, the the entire auction raised something like two point eight million dollars, and that's for five hundred cars. Not bad, but I think somebody has done, you know, a, uh, I kind of a rundown on, on was it worth it to hang on to all those cars? And right. I, I think it was determined that it was kind of a wash. Yeah. And when we say wash, we don't mean bro- they broke even. No, 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 exactly <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, you can look into that and find out exactly what the deal is on that. But, you know, $2.8 million in your hand sounds pretty good after collecting cars for 50 years. And really there was nothing to this. You just parked them, left them, and that was it. And, and now, yeah. you know, this guy that's now, um, you know, mid nineties, he and his wife are both still around. He's he's 95. His wife, Mildred, is 92, or she was at the time this was written, which was the end of last mm-hmm. year. Um, I don't know. It seems like that's a that's a reasonable thing for them to do is to sell it off because what are they going to do with 500 cars at this point? They're right, yeah. Yeah. So that is an amazing story, especially because I don't know about you, Scott, but it gives me the feeling that's a visible tip of a very large iceberg. You know? uh, yeah, I do too. Especially with the size of the United States. That's one thing. That's one thing that I think we don't really consider ourselves having grown up here and that people from other countries may not really feel until they get here. This place is huge, man. You could hide, you could hide 1200 cars, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, it's just a matter of like where you are in the world or where you are in this country, really, because, and it happens elsewhere too. As sure. We'll find out. I'm going to talk about some. From other countries in just a minute, but um, you know this this Ray Lambert guy. There's there's no doubt in my mind he's not the only one doing this. And we mentioned oh, yeah. you know Matt's story here, the, the you know our, our producer yeah. about what he had done. But that was only forty cars, and I say only. That's an mm-hmm. awful lot of cars. But I mean, I had no idea the collection was there, and it's relatively close to where we work here. It's south right. of, south of Atlanta somewhere. Um, you just don't hear about this stuff until something happens where they say, "All right, it's time to sell." Yeah, and, and then you become aware of it, and then you think. Why didn't they know that was there? And, you know, we, we talked when we were talking about the Edsel one time. I remember, uh-huh. I remember there was a guy somewhere that had, you know, 50 Edsels parked in a field somewhere and he, and he won't That's sell, right. he won't sell them. He you know, just wants to have them. Yeah. It's a, it's a weird thing. Or he sells, maybe he sells the parts or something, or he won't sell the parts. He'll only sell the full vehicle or something like that. Oh, it was something like that because we were talking about, we had talked before as well about how that can be a differentiation line because a lot of times when people are, 
collecting or restoring. They don't want to buy the whole car. They mm-hmm. just want the part that yeah. they need. Yeah, and then that leaves you with a pile of junk that maybe someone else doesn't want. So, you know, yeah. you've got to kind of decide. Are you going to sell the parts? Are you going to sell the whole vehicle? And there's a lot of cases like that. But, to, I mean, to have 50 Edsels parked in a field somewhere, that's unusual, right? I love, uh, just let me describe for our audience, uh, that you're shrugging a little bit every time you say 50 Edsels. Yeah. Wild hand gestures. Like, what, <laughs> what, what is this guy doing with 50 Edsels? Anyways, so uh, let's move on to another, uh, another... Yeah, thank you for humoring <laughs> me with a, with a private collector, uh, but... And there's what, more. Yeah, but let's go to, uh, a public collector. Cause we mentioned Nissan. We mentioned Henry Ford. Yeah. Oh, um, a quick one just on the side. Walter P. Chrysler Museum, which is now, I think, no longer open to the public. Yeah, um, it they closed, closed. closed down, but it's for private functions, I think. You can still get in. Right, yes. You and I talked about this one, Scott. So for any listeners who uh, really wanted to get into the museum, don't give up yet. Take heart, because if you just put together the right private event and uh, you can work out the, the math, on the wallet side, then I'm sure that you can get in. Yeah, and there's two of them like that right now in Detroit that I want to talk about. Now, that's that's the first one, Yeah, uh, the Walter P. Chrysler Museum, which was open to the public, had a great display. Yeah, They also had a basement with unrestored cars, ah. and that was where there was some real intriguing stuff down there as well, You know, some interesting things. And there were always cars coming in and going out, and you just never knew what was going to be there. It was just an interesting mix of vehicles. Uh-huh. And that happens. It wasn't as giant as the next one I'm going to tell you about, though, because this is huge. This is an incredible, incredible stash of cars that you're, you're going to, you would never see a grouping of cars like this ever again, I don't think, ever. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune into what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.
As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. That, I know that's a pretty bold statement, yeah. but you just might not. Because this is um, this is like all of GM's history all under one roof. Ah, okay. The GM Heritage Center, which is in Sterling Heights, Michigan, mm-hmm. also not open to the public. They have something like 600 or more cars that go from the very beginning of General Motors all the way through present day. Holy and crap. it's significant models. I mean, they have all three of the Firebird concepts that we talked about, the ones that look like jets. Yep. They have the very first concept car ever, the, uh, the Buke Y job, I believe oh. is what it's called. <laughs> Yeah, they have that. Um, they have everything. There's everything there. Mm-hmm. As many Corvettes as you can imagine. You know, and I'm only hitting some of the highlights here. Right. But there's there's so many cars. There's um, so many that literally, if you took the day to walk through and see each one, you wouldn't have enough time. And I don't think you can't even do that. I don't even know if they're all in one building. It's something like a. Um, I forget the square footage of this building, but it is enormous. It's a huge, huge place. And it covers, you know, you got to imagine a car history that covers more than 100 years. Yes, exactly. I mean, it's and a that's long history. More than one car a year, too. It's a long history for General Motors. And and obviously, this connect collection is still growing. It's, again, not open to the public, so you have to uh, either plan a special event or be part of a special mm-hmm. event. I think there may be a day when it's open to employees. So if you're an employee, you're lucky enough to be able to go. Personal question, did you ever, did you ever get there? I did not. My My father has. He's uh, he's been there as man. part of a uh, part of a video crew. He does a lot of uh, GM right. film work and stuff. Yeah. And uh, so he has been there, has been there, has seen it, has told me it's incredible, amazing thing to see. Really, but it's man. something. I mean, as they say, you know, in this article that I read, it's arguably the greatest collection of cars, period, anywhere in the world. And of course, you can argue about this. You know, what's what's a better collection? Maybe you know, Porsche has a better collection at their museum, and and you know, maybe um, Audi has a fantastic collection. They, I know they do. I'm just saying that this is a this is you know, with 600 cars, that's incredible. And all the brands that they have, that's true. Through the decades, through the century, how can you beat that? I would. You know what? I was going to say that maybe a, a very very wealthy private individual might have a collection like. Like Jay Leno's collection has some astonishing vehicles, but I don't think it comes close in in size and scope. No, no, it's not. It's not even. Anywhere. I don't know who would really. It's. Not, I mean, even that. I mean, we hear about that all the time. You right. Know, the, the, he has some remarkable automobiles, of course. I mean, we we all know that. But I don't know the exact number on Jay Leno's collection because we were doing secret car collections. Right. So, right. Yeah. But but nowhere near six hundred cars. I mean, it, it can't even be close. Wow. I mean, that's, it just doesn't happen. Now, there's another one that, um, I'd like to talk about here that is from another country. All right. Well, uh, where in the world are we going? Where in the world are we? And we're going to, uh, <laughs> we're going to Portugal, Spain for this next one, Ben. And, uh, this is a barn find or a supposed barn find. Okay. Uh, but, it, you know, it's, it's an intriguing story because initially everybody thought that this was just something, this was just something that, uh, you know, turned up that someone someone opened the door to this barn and found 180 classic cars in a barn in Portugal. It was it was uh, you know just it was like welded up and no one knew about it for decades and decades. Uh-huh. Not the case. What, okay. what what it really was was a similar case to um, the Lambrick collection in Nebraska. It's very similar. the The owner was an automobile dealer in the 1970s and 1980s, 
And he built up this huge assemblage of cars over the years, and he stashed them away in this barn. And then when the barn was full, Ben, he soldered the door shut. He didn't weld them. He soldered them shut, <laughs> which, is, which is a weird choice. But he soldered them shut. And so, you know, because the structure's full, yeah. it's uh, it's just gathering dust over the years. So when someone did peek in there, I'm sure it was impressive. I mean, I've seen the photos of this, and the cars are just parked, you know, door to door with um, with dust, you know, an inch of dust on everything. It's in, you know, no plastic wrap or anything. No, nothing like that. But um, the guy that shot the photos kind of cleared up the story on this whole thing, because the photos were leaked first. Yeah. And someone said... Look at this incredible barn find. It was unknown cars that, you know, just turned up and, and it's out of context. Turns out, yeah, exactly right. You know, this is the same thing. The guy just kind of squirreled away cars over the decades and it ended up being an, an amazing collection when it's done. Not all of them are fantastic. Not all of them ever, all of them are museum cars by any means, but there's some notable cars in there. There's some race cars in there, some cars that are just pretty rare to begin with, you know, yeah. and they haven't been around for, you know, they haven't been on the road rather for 40 years. So, do you think that the locals knew about this? Where in Portugal was this? I do. Today? I could. I can't tell exactly yeah, okay. where they were in Portugal, but you know, it must be a, a tucked away area somewhere. Clearly, that, yeah. Obviously, I mean, it must be a farm type environment right, somewhere. Right. Um, but you know, it wasn't really a secret to the family or anybody around there. It was mm-hmm. just a secret to the rest of the world. He probably just soldered it shut for security at uh, some point. Likely. I mean, he padlocked it. You know, padlocked it and soldered it shut. So you know, he didn't want anybody getting in there. I always wonder what was he planning to do. I don't know. He's got 180 cars, <laughs> and you know, here it is. Four years later, he hasn't touched any of them. Right. You know, there's not going to be any. There's clearly not any restoration project going on, anything like that. So, again, it's just one of those head scratchers. Like, what's he going to do with that? With those 180 cars? Before we get to the next one, mm-hmm. I do have to say, um, for all our longtime listeners who recall our episode on the Corvette giveaway, mm-hmm. that one really just broke me up, man, on a personal level because, you know, we're always very careful to say that whether or not we agree with what somebody's doing to their car, it's their car, but this is uh, this is the VH1 giveaway uh, for a Corvette for every year that Corvettes have been made, and then this the guy who is currently in charge of it, right? Yeah. He's turned it into an art project. Yeah, because he's an artist. Yeah, and hasn't been taking very good care of the cars. He bought them from the winner. Yeah. Who mm-hmm. just sort of also didn't take care of them. Yeah, that's right. I mean there was uh it was an interesting story though, wasn't it? I mean yeah. fascinating. And I'd I'd love to get an update on that story. I oh, you know what? The artist uh the artist isn't the artist is actually way better to the cars. At least he's doing something with well, them. Well, he, he sort of, yeah. I mean, they, <laughs> remember, it became kind of a secret car collection because someone yeah. just discovered them in an underground parking structure somewhere. Yeah. Um, after they had been left again, Ben, for like maybe a decade or more. Yeah, and they had totally gone to pot. You know, the tires were ruined. So much of the rubber was eaten away. Yeah, mold and mildew issues because yeah. the windows were left down and things like yeah. that. It's just, uh, it was a... I guess a sad ending, but I think the the good in that was that you know it it got some interest, and I don't know if it was broken up then, if it was sold, or if he held on to them and and did anything with them finally because you know there's public pressure now. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. But that so, counts as a as a secret car collection too. Definitely. This brings us to, is this uh is this the big one that you I, talked about earlier? I think it is because I think okay. this is the one that maybe not a lot of people have heard about this, and uh, and the only reason that you might have. Is because of the condition that Detroit is in right now. They're in, oh. uh, they're in bankruptcy. Okay. And they filed for bankruptcy, um, you know, last year, I believe it was, sometime last year. And I don't know all the details. I'm not going to even try to, to talk about the details of the, uh, the bankruptcy, but there's 
problems in the Motor City. We all know that. Right. Yeah. Okay. It's, so it's known. Now, the anxiety that comes up over something like this is, is, uh, is well founded, I believe, because there's a car collection that is held at a place called Fort Wayne. Now, Fort Wayne is a historic, and you think of Fort Wayne, Indiana, but right. this is Fort Wayne, Detroit. And it's right on the river, and I guess it would be just uh, south of Belle Isle, that area, if, okay. you know, if you know the uh, the terrain. And it's a collection of 62 cars that are on that property. They're on the Fort Wayne property. And th- this is so unique, Ben. They're, they're so strange. It's They're not really on display. They're not for the public to see. This is just really a collection of cars that have been held for the, the purpose of preserving the history of the automobile in Detroit. Are they in Bubbles? They're in bubbles. They're all in these uh, these um, pressurized bubbles, these p- clear plastic bubbles, every single one of them. So you look at this warehouse shot, and it's, I mean, again, they're parked side by side, yeah. and there's a hum of, of uh, you know, the generators that, that are keeping the fans blowing these things, you know, keeping them. Keep them cool and dry, they're probably. Cool and dry. They're also, you know, the, so there's no plastic touching them. These are restored cars. They're, they're lovingly restored, as the article says, and I wouldn't say pristine by any means, but they're museum quality cars, I guess. Right, yeah. And, you know, the, these bubbles keep insects out. They keep humidity out away from them. All that, you know, they're being well kept in this museum, in this, uh, um, warehouse, rather. Yeah. It's just nobody knows about them, that they're just sitting there. And again, the, the reason for having them is that it just preserves the history of the Motor City. And, and it was added to year after year. You know, people, um, I guess, you know, Civic-minded citizens would donate these cars and say, I want this to be part of your collection because it's a significant automobile in some way, and here's the reason. I think they have um, a Cadillac there from, I think I want to say the early, like 1905. And, you know, that, that's, right away, that's uh, that's a very, very rare vehicle, but the one that's maybe the most valuable is a Ford Mustang that's worth an estimated $2 million that's in this building. Um, the whole collection, I don't know if you could even... Put a dollar amount really on the thing because you know it depend on tough. the market. Yeah. yeah, but I mean it's a huge, huge collection. It's sixty-two cars that are that are there, and they have like a nineteen thirty-four Chrysler Airflow, which is significant. They have oh. a uh, they have some others that are kind of middle of the road. Like they have they have an maybe not even middle. They have an AMC Pacer, which is kind of funny, <laughs> you know. But you know it, it represents some of what was going on in Detroit. It was a, a part of AMC's history, so it's there. Right. It's I, not there just to be the highlights of their favorite. No, times. but they do have other stuff that is very significant, like that Mustang that I mentioned, the two million dollar Mustang. Yeah, they have the nineteen nineteen Dodge Coupe that belonged to John Francis Dodge, uh, which has his initials in the door written in gold. Yeah, uh, which is pretty impressive. Uh, the, the odometer reading is something like four thousand miles on it, so it's very very low miles. Um, it's just a, they have an, a 1902 Oldsmobile runabout, which they think is one of the first mass-produced automobiles ever, which is significant for Detroit in, in its own way. Uh, just there's an amazing group of vehicles here, and a lot of people just don't even know that it's there because it's just stuck in a warehouse somewhere. And again, there's this anxiety over what's going to happen to this collection because is it is it property of the city of Detroit, right. which is now going through bankruptcy, which means that its assets can be liquidated. Yeah. And they have an emergency, um, it's an emergency manager, uh, the right. city, city manager. Yeah. His name is Kevin Orr. And the city owes something like 15 to 17 billion dollars right now, Ben. Billion? Billion with a B. Oh. And that's why things like this collection are being looked at like, well, you better hang on to that collection because that's part of our history. But then Kevin Orr is probably looking at it, you know, as, as money symbols saying, well, if I can get 20 million, I mean, it's a drop in the bucket, but, you know, if I can get 20 million for that collection, 
why wouldn't we sell that to to uh, benefit the city of Detroit to get it out of this bankruptcy situation? That's just a shame. And, though. and they're looking at things like you know the the artwork and the museum in downtown. You know, and that's another huge thing that people are they've got yeah. all this anxiety over. But we're talking about cars, and we're talking about this collection of cars, yeah. the sixty two vehicles. I can see why a lot of people are are sweating about this. You know, saying like, well, let's get them out of there if we have to, but. They're still property of Detroit, I believe. It reminds me in in some way, just thematically, I guess, of the stories of people in times of revolution who had to burn their books Mm -hmm. to keep their house warm. Yeah, I mean, what do you do? It's a very, very difficult decision. Very difficult. Um, But we also are going to end on an up note because one of my favorite parts when we were looking at this episode and getting ready for it, Scott, was this. I know that some of you out there listening are acquainted with a strange and mysterious collection of cars somewhere in your area, or you've heard of it. And even if it's one of those friend of a friend of a friend things, which, by the way, usually means it's not true. We Usually. Yeah, usually. I'm going to go with a hard 83% of the time. Minimum, <laughs> it's not true. Very specific. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Go specific. But we would like to hear if you have any anecdotes or stories or discoveries about local car collections in your area because we eat these stories up. You can find us on Facebook. You can tell us about these on Twitter. You can also send us an email directly. We are carstuff at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fairs. Discover more at viking.com.